So I think that was my biggest asset to becoming the instructor that I became because I always felt like I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't want to be an instructor. I wanted to inspire people how to think about why you do what you do and not just, because I'd always tell my students, don't you ever leave this class and someone ask you why you do what you do and say, well, that's the way my instructor told me to do it. No, you don't ever say that. You tell them why you do what you do because you, I've given you, you the tools it. to think through the process because I give you variables. Mm-hmm. You know, this works, this works, this works, works best for you to make people think about everything that they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it. You know, and it creates, especially in the more technical world, it gives that peop- those people more tools because now their minds already been taught to process through different scenarios to solve a problem. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. everybody welcome back to the great dive podcast uh this is another one of our checkout dives checkout interviews with this time good old larry green a classic florida cave diving cave diver as well as a cave instructor been teaching and diving down there for decades one of the one of the originals and one of the most passionate teachers like he really likes to talk about you know finding himself to be an an educator not just an instructor right yeah if if you're a cave diver and you don't know larry green turn in your card uh and if you're a regular open water diver and you don't know larry green well you need to know who larry green is he's uh like james already brought up He's a, a teacher more than an instructor. Yeah, he was the uh, training director for the NACD for, for a very long time. 70 years old now. He's mm-hmm. still diving, still throwing on a set of doubles, and he's not throwing on a set of doubles and limping his way no. to the water. You know, uh, I mean, he's throwing them on, leading the way, leading the pack, mm-hmm. and then in the water. You know, I've had the, the pleasure of being in the water with him. The guy's as graceful as any good diver i've ever seen in the water yeah and from what i know and understand as well is he's a he's a cave diving instructor that cave diving instructors look up to okay so he's he he doesn't like to be called a legend but he's really is a legend if you look back through any old technical diving magazines from the 90s and you'll see how much or how heavily involved he was with the advancing cave diving and advancing diving technology and 
he was just uh if it if it had to do with cave diving larry was involved with it for the most part so it was really an honor yeah and he tells uh he tells to, a bunch of the stories here uh, mm-hmm. along with just his thinking and his philosophy a little bit of his life and we hope you guys dig it we uh we enjoyed the hell of it we could have spent hours oh, with him doing this hey, you, um how long has he been doing it right and here's a guy who's something that i can uh that i like to do or identify or i try to pass on to my kids is how life is and you can learn about life from diving and how he ended up becoming a, a cave diving instructor and being so heavily involved in the the building of the cave diving community and the education system of cave diving and then, and then also and just, just diving, yeah, yeah. exactly, just diving in general. So right. even for the people who aren't cave divers, but this is—I was, was just trying to say it was kind of a serendipitous, serendipitous event. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to become a cave diving instructor. Correct. It was a bunch of small little things in his life that kind of funneled him into this. It always makes when you look back on it, it's just like when I look back in my life, I, it almost seems faded, you know, fated. In the sense of this was how it was supposed to happen. This was what was supposed to happen. And all these little tiny paths you took that led you to where you are. So he talks about that. Yeah, good stuff. Really, you know, not just diving, babbling. It's it's life. And uh, that's what I really enjoyed. Well, cool. And a, and a nice, super nice person. Just a really nice person. So. Okay, people. I hope you dig it. You will. You better dig this. Grab that microphone there. Well, I, I know, but while you're talking, tell them that story. I'm going to ch- dial your level in at the same time. So, when we first when we first started diving Trimix, we there's no software, there's no computers, no com- whatsoever for it. So we had to purchase our tables from a guy named Dr. Bill Hamilton, and he was the only one that we could get tables from. And the first thing he told us is, I'll sell you these tables, but there's no research, there's no data whatsoever on Trimix. We've got a lot of data on heliox, you know, and oxygen, but, but we have nothing on this, so you're on your own, you know. But here it is. This is my best guess. So fortunately, I was with an individual. My partner was financially able to support us well enough that we actually got involved with DCM out of Canada, and we actually got Dopplers and got trained, and we actually Dopplered ourselves from the beginning dives and adjusted everything that we did, learning how to dive it. And this was long before there was any agencies or any programs available that even taught Trimix or decompression or anything else. We were out there experimenting. I think we were probably the first civilian group people that actually did any kind of Doppler studies to adjust the tables and we was actually recording and actually sending all our recordings to DCM to validate our own readings because they told us how to read them to somewhat but we recorded and gave it to them to validate what we were doing and we did make some adjustments you know on them but one thing we found out along the way was that you get readings from one to five. Like five, you should be in a chamber. One, you got very little bubbles in, in your tissues, you know. And one thing that was kind of scary that we heard, found out was that, you know, because we started listening to it, 
and and how much just squeezing a fist when you're talking about you know you want to minimize exertion after dives and stuff like that but if you can listen to your blood flow and and squeeze a fist it's scary really you know so we would find and the scary thing that i found out we found out was that sometimes we were we were rating high and we were feeling good and sometimes we were rating low and didn't feel as good so it, there was no correlation with that you know but it was a hell of a better from all the dives that I did you know from the late late 70s early 80s up until 89 when we first started doing this because everything was on air for us mm-hmm. you know and like I was a guide at DePolar, which was a two to three hundred foot dive, and it was mandatory that you couldn't use anything but air because everything else was experimental. There was that, that no was proof, all. There was no proof of it. Right. You know? So we were, we all grew up, and fortunately, unfortunately, I lived in Hernando County, and the only thing, everything we had there was deep. Like DePolar was. At that time, before Wikiwacha exploration, was the deepest cave in the continental United States. And Eagle's Nest was next. And then, you know, a number of years ago when they started exploring and getting into uh, uh, Wikiwacha, then it became the deepest because they yeah, hit, hit over 400. Like 400 feet, yeah. Right. Yeah, they hit a little over 400. And the deepest we hit in the polar was like 360 in that. And we did that in a project we did in 1991. And back then, what was funny about back then was that we thought that we needed to get off the helium coming back as soon as possible. So we started using air as our deep nitrox. So we, and what taught the biggest lesson was so we were doing 360, plan for 380 in polar. So we were doing a, an like an 80-10 mix or something. And so we come back, and my first decompression stop was at 220 feet, and I go on air. Yeah. <laughs> Boom, yeah. And I'm, I, I, I do remember sitting there, and I'm looking, because back then we didn't have a computer. We had written tables or right, typed out right. tables that we had to look at to tell us what. And I just remember just sitting there staring at him because it was like hieroglyphics. <laughs> I couldn't understand his shit. I had to go back on my back gas. To, to be able and, to see and, it. And, Yeah, because yeah. you go from being nice and clean on the yeah. Trimix to... Bam. I mean, because it was like... It was like narcosis you know, you, of you, air that deep. You've been, you've been underwater for 30, 40 minutes, you know, on 80% helium, and then all of a sudden at 220 feet, you, you go on, you know, 79% nitrogen. Bam. Let me ask you, was it worse, in your opinion, going back to air than if you would have taken air straight down? Or well, I had a down? lot of experience air the, the whole air, dive because yeah. that's where most of my dives were up until 89 because it was kind of funny because for a long time we said anything you know, shallower, shallower than 230 was a shallow dive. We weren't going deep until we got below 230 on air. And back then, we did not have CNS. There was no talk about CNS, you know. And that was something that came later on. Somebody drew a line in the sand and said, this is going to be a, a, 
100% of CNS, and this is what we're going to start gauging everything from. So we didn't know anything about oxygen exposure back then. And for most people back then, the nitrogen limited most people from going to where the O2 was a problem. But there was a few of us that, you know, because of... I don't know, we had higher tolerance because of other things we might have been doing in our life, you know. <laughs> and, and, and later on, if I found that the more of the people that I knew that deep dove on air did other things for recreation. I don't know what correlation that was, but it, there was a correlation there for quite some time. L- let's just say... There was a lot of Jimi Hendrix fans, is that fair? That's, that's very, very, very fair. So once they came out with the CNS and they started talking about the signs and symptoms and to look for in these things, and I started thinking back over some of my dives, and I remember every one of the signs and symptoms that they because I've, I've experienced tingling and twitching and the metallic taste and all these things but for some reason during those early days I when something different happened I always backed off I didn't know why I just well you you probably were were active enough and and focused enough in it that you had that slowly developed sixth sense where you could be in tune with your body enough that you were aware and knew to pull off subtle changes meant something when all of a sudden something didn't feel right anymore i didn't i didn't have like i noticed later on that a lot happens to a lot of people is that they feel like they have these demons that they've got to accomplish over of and they say well i can i can i can keep going well i never had that i said something was wrong i'd back up and i'll come back again another day I, I never had something to prove to myself like that. And I think that was real important and, and part of some of the message that came through in my teaching because I think a big difference with for me is that I had 10, 12, 13 years of experience with a lot of, with several major projects under my belt before I ever even thought about becoming an instructor for what I'm doing. You know, I started doing some of these things before we had agencies teaching it. And not until later on, after years after, we, the agencies started producing materials for this, did I consider that I had, I had, at that time, the experience to be able to do that. Yeah, fantastic stuff, man. You know, so do we want to back up? No, no, this is great. This is great. This is, this is fantastic. We, we should, though, start and say that... Welcome to the Great Dive Podcast, everybody. Yes, we, we need to say that. Um, We're sharing a mic, so. Yeah, Brandon and I are sharing a mic. Uh, we are at the home of the, the, the famous Dave Sheard and Kelly Rogers, who are housing us up for the, for the week down here uh, cave diving. Thank you guys very much. Their gracious hospitality. They've been wonderful. And, yeah, yeah they, they've been doing everything for us. And we're here with Larry Green. Um, Thank you. So, so great to have you here. There's a little bit of noise in the background because there's a lot of people here uh, hanging out and uh, having a good time. And uh, we're going to do this fantastic interview. Um, oh, come on. <laughs> uh, with, with, a, with a guy that has been really in the, in the thick of, of this 
diving world, especially this cave diving world, for four decades now, right? Close to it, yeah. Yeah, amazing. I and hate for I, you to remind me of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I know you, you hate this term, but uh, in the, the eyes of many, many people, and uh, I, I can say this firsthand from uh, seeing all the people run into you a couple, couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago now, when we were down at DEMA there, definitely has, has some of that legend status. From uh, the things you've done, the people you've been with, the, the, the dives you've done, what you've helped make this industry and, and especially this specific community become. And the divers you've influenced. I know divers. I heard of you from a guy that dove named Tony Jones. I don't know if you remember Tony. Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. He dove with Tom Mount and he dove with you and he, he said nothing but high praise. And this was, this was almost, uh, almost 20 years ago close to 18 20 years ago yes and, yes yes yeah, so i just want to spend a lot of time yes. coming up with uh so you were a leg- you were a legend back then and, and it, it, i mean tony came back and just said you have to meet this guy you have to see him and, uh anyway well, uh, well well i've said it to, i said it to larry you know uh when i was down here doing some training with you and I, i've said it to a number of people since then that i've had the luxury of meeting a lot of people in this industry over the the many years I've been in here and the reputation that people have often when when you finally see them in the water can sometimes be a letdown and it's really nice when you see somebody that exceeds your expectations when you get in the water with them and that was who are you talking about (laughs) I'm talking about you my man uh like uh just smooth and clean and calculated and thinking and efficient and so it was very, very nice to, to hear all these things, get in the water, and just see it alive in action. I appreciate that. Um, so, we, so we've got this interview, and I know we were rambling early on, and, and that's A-OK. There, are, there is a little bit of a, a course of action that we want to try to get done. But, okay, but, I'm good but, with but that. But this is yours, right? You, you can take this any way you want. We're going to have fun with it. You're going to say something, and it's going to make him think of Tony Jones and... <laughs> <laughs> And somebody else, and he's going to take it off. Yeah, there's it's a lot a, of stories there. This is all but anyway. But, it's all but fun. I think we are already started off with. I think one of the major first questions that you, you know, you brought up is, you know, uh, right. Larry and I were talking before. Of uh, like, yeah. So the 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 first question was like, like, what do you? So here you are, right? Forty years in this world, then some, right? Yeah. Um, from learning learning to dive before learning to dive was even going and taking an official class to being a training director of uh, of the NACD, of doing all the stuff that you've done. Um, what would you say for the people listening? Can you think of something that would you say, this is what was one of the biggest contributors of me making it all this time and sticking with it and accomplishing what I've done? I think a lot of it, back in the beginning was the people that I had as mentors or teachers, there was very few people doing anything back then. And so it was a small group. So when I I was very fortunate, not knowing at the time anything about cave diving or the word technical diving was not existent back then, was that my, my first dive was with a friend I work with that took me into a 150-foot sinkhole in the Wikiwacha River called Hospital Hole. And that was long before I even thought about getting certified. 
And so years, it took uh, a couple of years later that I finally decided to uh, go get certified because it become a problem with more and more places to be able to get equipment and air fills. So I went to a little area in uh, Hudson, Florida, and I found this Patty Open Water instructor at a marina, and he, he trained me uh, Patty Open Water. So... I fell in love with it right then, and you know, they said, "When did it begin?" Well, you know, for me, it probably could have begun during my childhood, growing up in the '60s, watching um, Mike Nelson and Sea Hunt, which I think a lot of people relate back to. But it took me and going, uh, getting out of school, going through the military, and then getting back out to be able to, you know, be where I could do any of this. So, I. I Got certified open water, and this guy name was Chuck, Chuck Walls. I remember his name quite well. And I was so excited, I came back, and I think I did every specialty program that Patty had to offer. And so finally, I come back, and he said, well, what else can we do? Because I kept, he said, well, yeah, I've done everything we got, you know? <laughs> so, so the next thing I find out later on that, my open water instructor, and this was in the 70s, he was also a certified cave diver. And he never mentioned it to me until he didn't have anything else to offer me. So he took me to Peacock Springs and took me in the cavern. And I was hooked. I was hooked. And we lived in Hernando County back then. That's where I grew up a lot. And he was the first one that took me on my deep dive in a place called the Polar Sink Number 3, before I even knew that there was that's a guide a, program. That's a little more than a deep dive, though. That's, that, <laughs> yes. So, deep and then some. so then it was still a number of years after experiencing that in Eagle's Nest before I ever found an instructor to be able to teach me cave diving because now I've been experiencing some cave and caverns. I started looking for an instructor to teach me how to do that so I could do that. And back then... That was hard to find. There was a few people like Sheck Exley, you know, uh, uh, Paul Heinrich. There was very few people. There was not many back. And I found, wound up getting an instructor. He was in Tampa, and he was certified to teach cave under Sheck uh, and Mary Ellen Ackoff was his instructors. So that was that became my my first cave instructor. Uh, so er everything kind of grew from there. Uh, so, and this was during the time where I was also became an open water instructor myself because I'd gotten so, a lot of things were going on at the same time because I was, you know, I was, I was hungry for, for scuba and for whatever I could do. So then I wanted to teach open water. So I wanted Yeah, you were a, a, a a true diver like many many people out there that are listening who are got hooked they they started diving took a couple trips became instructors and they just they want that to be part Correct. of their life you were really right in that same same, that boat, same, right? same arena and so I, I think one of my biggest benefits were the people that i had as teachers or or that inspired me because my open water uh it was a guy named hal white you know, oh yes. Mm -hmm. So Hal was my uh, open water uh, instructor, and he was later my advanced open water instructor. And then 
Later on, when I started, not into the mid-90s, did INTD come around and start teaching some technical programs that I started getting more and more involved with, with Tom Mount. So we did a lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of dives together with Tom. So I had a lot of good influence with, with the people that was doing everything. So I think that was one of my, my biggest you know, appreciations of the people that it was a small arena and they were the people that was making things happen. So I got you know, the privilege of being able to do and be with those kind of people. So back to that question then. So the, that major contributor is just being around the right people that kept you inspired and kept you motivated and were able to mentor you like, along the way like you had of, mentioned? Of course, you know, and uh, it's so much about attitude, you know, because I picked up the right attitude about people. And thing, I never planned on, on going and doing any of the things I did. And I just keep saying, you know, we got to be flexible enough to let your life's experiences kind of guide your path and what you're going to do. Because when you get started in a new field, you know nothing about it. And that's the problem, because when you first get started, you don't know the questions to ask. You don't know the concerns until you've got some experience under your belt. And yeah, that's then, one, of, one of Brandon's then, favorite Then you quotes. can start making some evaluations mm-hmm. of where I'm going to go and what I want. Mm-hmm. But I had no idea when I started all this that I wanted to... We didn't even know what cave diving was. <laughs> What's cave diving? Uh, and, until my open water instructor finally didn't have anything else to give me but a cavern. And back then, there was no steps in any of the parks. Right. We had to climb down rocky <laughs> banks to get into the water. Sorry, yeah, and it was great. Yeah. It was great. So, um, so, so I, you, you, go ahead, go ahead. So I, I kind of think I didn't become an instructor for anything other than open water until mid-90s. And uh, I actually quit teaching open water because it started getting in the way of cave diving. So I kind of quit open water diving. And I didn't get back into any teaching until the mid-90s when now that there was, there was agencies involved in doing it. And now I'd had probably... 10 to 15 years of diving experience, plus I'd already done the Eagle's Nest project. We'd done a project at the Polar with a deep exploration, and we'd also did a project up in Wakala of Sally Ward. We did some dive tracing there. So I'd already been involved with doing some major projects, planning, uh, seeing some mistakes, seeing some problems, and a lot of planning activities long before I become or even considered wanting to become an instructor. Because it used to be those saying, you know, those that, that don't dive teach. Mm. Well, so, I, you know, that was always a problem for me, so I never wanted to teach because I was always too busy cave diving, and we, we kept running into one project and one thing after another that we wanted to do. So I think that was my biggest asset to becoming the instructor that I became because I always felt like, I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't want to be an instructor. I oh, wanted to inspire fan, people fantastic. how to think yeah. about why you do what you do and not just... Because I'd always tell my students, don't you ever leave this class and someone ask you why you do what you do and say, well, well, that's the way my instructor told me to do it. No, you don't ever say that. You tell them why you do what you do because you, I've given you, you the it. tools to think through the process because I give you variables. Mm-hmm. 
you know, this works, and this works, this works, works best for you. To make people think about everything that they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it. You know, and it creates, especially in the more technical world, it gives that peop- those people more tools because now their mind's already been taught to process through different scenarios to solve a problem. So that's part of what my yeah, teaching involved we, we, we've now. had this conversation many a times where, you know, and, and Brandon has said, listeners will, will remember, as an instructor, there's no way that I can teach you to solve every problem that could possibly exist out there. What we would rather do and what I'm going to try to do is to teach you to think underwater that you can apply all of this and stay focused and work through the issues. Correct. Yeah, when, and the thing is, is every, everything that I teach them to do is through a process of elimination of variables. You know, you got to give them, give them all the variables involved in the scenario and let them sort it out. And I've had so many times, well, why can't I do it? Well, go ahead and do that. So it's about uh, let them have some trial and error themselves instead of dictating, well, you do it this way. Right. Consequences teach. Yeah, yeah. consequences teach really well, don't they? I, I think. I do. Yeah. And I always give, and I always love seeing them make a mistake and, and hold him back I, I, and see if they can fix it. Well, because there, there's, no, there's no teacher quite like you saying to yourself, Holy shit, what did I just do? <laughs> and, and, uh, You're a pretty good teacher yourself. Yeah. So I, after, after doing this for you know, a couple of days, I was able to, when my students come in during the, our first talk, I would say, tell them that I have a crystal ball and I can see into the future. And at some point in time, we're going to surface from a dive. And I'm going to ask you why you did some particular thing during that dive. And you'll respond to me by saying, I thought you wanted me to. And my response back to you was, did I communicate that to you in any way? (laughs) No. So that was the other aspect of assumptions because students are are so energetic about pleasing and doing what they think instead of dissecting this and getting them to actually think for themselves about a situation instead of thinking about what somebody else wants me to do. Yes. Well, they're they're so... And and that's that's a hard... Between a student and an instructor, getting them... Because I'll tell you right up front, that's the hardest thing because they're constantly trying to do what they think you want them to do. And so I don't want you to to care about what I want you to do. I want you to take each segment of this dive if there's a, a, I call it a scenario because in training we call them emergency scenarios. And I I always like to refer to them as situational scenarios because it should never be an emergency. I, I hated the word emergency. Let's get rid of the word emergencies because there's situations that we need to deal with. Fantastic. And th- this is w- what you were saying a moment ago. About, it, to me, it rings loud and clear. This is the difference between an instructor and an educator. Or a teacher. Yeah, teacher. Or, or a, a teacher. teacher, yeah. Yes. Trying, oh, yeah. To, trying to inspire them to think for themselves. Yeah. So all these little things, and I, every, every time would come, you know, every class would, would surface and I'd ask that question, and they'd, um, oh, shit, you said I was going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But for, for then on, 
you know, it takes that for them to start realizing they're not thinking for themselves, you know. And so, and that's what's most important, get them to go through a process of analyzing variables to come to a conclusion and then getting them to completely solve that problem for themselves instead of worrying about what somebody else th wants you to do. I don't care. And I tell, I tell my students also, because a lot of students, they come in and they're entrusting that the instructor is going to take them to this adverse environment and take care of them and bring them home. I tell my students right up front, I don't want you to trust me at all because I'm going to be the first one to lead you astray, and so will someone else that you trust. Because it might not be on purpose, but it might be, you know, so the other part is p teaching acceptance of total responsibility for yourself. And especially when you're getting in, not only just open water diving, but more so when you start getting into more technical aspects of diving so you're going deeper, is you need to be accept total responsibility of yourself. Have the aware, awareness to know if something is not right and be assertive enough to do something about it. Yeah, that's a, that's a, hard, that's a hard pill to swallow for so many people. It really, but the thing, main thing is just understanding. And in most cases, if you don't feel good about something, do something about it. Yeah. Because you can always go to the surface and come back later. Yeah. Because Fantastic. our instincts are good. We need to pay attention to them. And, and I believe that's what saved me in my early days of diving, you know, deep on air and all the stuff we did back then. It's just I recognized something wasn't right. Come back later. There you go. So good stuff. Um, so this this next question that I sent you that I wanted to ask. Oh, you, I hate questions. I, I think uh, I, I think I actually want to preface it with something else, but I wanted to t get give you the ability to talk about what it was um, that first made you realize that scuba was your life, cave diving was your life, that you wanted to do this for the rest of your life. But at the same time, I, I, what's coming into my head right now is I'm thinking, do like after all these decades of doing this. Do you consider yourself, like looking back from the third person, Larry Green was a scuba diver all these years, was a cave diver all these years, was a teacher all these years? What, how do you see yourself? I look at myself more as an educator because of the experience that I gained before I became an, an instructor. I see more and more today that people are enjoying the sport a lot and they're becoming teachers too quickly with, without, without a lot of life experiences in the environments they're teaching. And that's another thing that I spoke about. Because, and even in the, not to put anything down, but in the open water industry, uh, you have a lot of times you have instructors teaching no more than what they know. Right, they're open water divers themselves, and they're yeah. teaching open water. So, and I've always encouraged people to, you know, especially potential students, you know, research your instructor and, and find out how much real-life experiences they have, and especially when you're getting more into the technical aspects of it. Have, have they been only doing this for two or three years? Because it only takes two years and X number of dives to become a cave instructor anymore, you know. So how much life experiences in what you're asking your instructor 
to provide for you, whether or not it's an open water structure or nitrox, any kind of technical, anything, don't hesitate to look at the background, you know, as you would your doctor or your attorney or anybody else. Look at the background and, and get the best experience that you can from your open water instructor or whatever instructor you're taking training from. Don't hesitate to ask questions. And that's the biggest problem is most, you know, unknowledgeable people wanting to get into diving, they don't know the right questions. True. You don't, yeah, they don't, don't know what you, they don't you, know. You, and, you don't yeah. know. The thing is, is just, you can encourage them to say that, find out how long they've been doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. is a big thing because there's so many brand news out there and and not that they're not good but i think people learn a lot more from people that's got more field living experience with the sport they're teaching so can you remember back when you had that revelation of saying to yourself yeah this is going to be me this is i want to continue education and and take education of the diver of the cave diver to this new level this new deeper level well i got some my career was primarily in construction i built houses as as i was cave diving during all these early years i was supporting all my cave diving habits by building houses so that that supported my way through it and then with uh a few scenarios that took place then uh i and the economy and one thing or another, then uh, I had to, you know, sidestep. And uh, at that point, I was moving into the mid-90s, and the only thing I, I knew or I thought I had experience of being able to do, and now we had INTD was the first one that came out and started teaching some of the technical courses. I said, well, let me, let me jump in and do this for a while. But at the, even at that point, it was not like this is what I'm planning on doing the rest of my life. It was, it was still a continual, well, this, this is a sidestep. I'll do this because I feel like now, after almost 15 years, I, I think I got some experience. And I had three major projects under my belt. And, and uh, so I said, let me do this. So it kind of evolved from that because... You, you never start out being a good teacher or a good instructor. And uh, I had to learn how to be a teacher because we all start out following the footprints of our instructor trainers or everything that's out there. So it was an evolution by, all right, I started out that way and then I realized that's not working for me. And so having, having an, an open mind and enough time under my belt I think said I don't always I don't have to always do it this way mm-hmm. I, I can I started looking for better ways to get people to do things and um, unfortunately or fortunately in mixed gas cave diving and all the advanced technical courses it involves around class A personalities and it's hard. It's times, hard. Yes. It's hard. Hard to get a point across somebody that's already successful in a field, and they're coming into another field, and you've got to convince them to do something that they don't quite understand. So, learning learning how to do that because I mean I've had students from from plumbers to aero engineers and all across the spectrum, you know, that had a lot more education, abilities, and everything else. That, but I had to learn how to get 
my subject matter across to get through the to them. And that's that's one of the things that I would say, you know, where you stand out as a as an educator to me is you have that ability to not just read down the instructor slate of we got to do X, Y, and Z, but to read the student before you and know what's actually going to be best for them so that they walk away from you a better diver and a, and a better person at the end of the day. Well, and one thing that helped me, too, along the way is that I've, I've had every student send me a brief after every, di- after every course to evaluate. So I, I've, I've got years of evaluation letters from students that help me understand a lot also. Mm-hmm. You know, and so adjusting to be able to understand how I never, I never argue or debate with anybody. Never. It's a wise words right there. I mean. Never yeah. argue or, or debate. Okay. <laughs> well, let's, let's look at it your way. Yeah. You know, and then we'll, let's go try it that way. So is it more of a Socratic method? Yes. In other words, you yes. let them show themselves yes. what they need to yeah. learn. Yeah. Because that's how, see, I don't want them to do something just because I told them to. All right, I'll, I'll go with what, okay, if you're that strong about it, I'm not going to debate this. Let's, let's, go, let's go see what works. If it works for you, because certain things work okay for some people that don't work for others. And I'm still learning myself. You know, I've, I've gotten to points where I thought, Man, I think I've seen it all. That every time I get to a point where I've seen it all, some some student will come up and do something. Man, I never expected that. And especially in cave or deep, you you get it. You get it. I believe so, that it attracts some unique individuals. It's it, and that and that's part part of the challenge that I think that I enjoyed a lot is the the personalities. That I've had to learn to deal with, that I would, and I've been fortunate because I've I've met people that I would never have met in any other, any other walk of life, because they're all they're all up there, you know, and and just trying to get them to move from one field that they excel in into something else that they can be safe and excel into also. Fantastic, and right on that topic of feeling safe and being safe I wanted to ask you about strengths and weaknesses as a diver and here you are been diving for decades and decades and decades Um, we all as divers and just as people in general I would say have our own strengths and weaknesses that make us who we are and somebody like yourself is there is there something that you would say that you would still have as a weakness that you know, that, that still makes you human? Like for that new guy out there that, that's listening to this right now that looks at old, uh, has somebody like Larry Green on this huge pedestal that you can say, hey, listen, you know, something that you have to think about every dive or you make sure that you definitely are paying attention to every time you get in the water and do a dive that you don't get lazy on, that you don't take for granted. Yes, yes, most definitely. And that's the sheer basis, basics. The very basics you learn in 101 training in open water, your basic one-on-one cave diving, your basics, is develop good procedures, good practices, good habits, and develop a discipline, a consistency to always follow them. 
because every accident and every mistake that has ever happened in life, in cave diving, is caused because of an inconsistency of someone doing what they should have been doing. So I tell my students, because they'll come to me after class and they say, well, I see so-and-so instructor, I see so-and-so people that's been doing this for 30 years, and they don't do the stuff that you teach us to do in class. Well, there's a reason. So I for, make... For instance, like... We're like running the reel, run, <laughs> running a running reel, keeping line. all lines connected, yeah. following every basis that I teach or is taught in the beginning classes. I teach. There's no one can ever say that they saw Larry Green not run a reel into the cave or connect a jump in the cave or any of the basics. So what scares me the most about myself is because I've done something so long that I get complacent and start thinking that I don't need to do that anymore because I know my way around here because I've been doing it for 30 or 40 years and I don't need to do it. I, un, this, like un other, any other sport, and I don't understand how people don't think about it, how can any athlete be good at what they do if they don't practice the basics every day? How can someone be, learn how to cave dive and all of a sudden say, now I don't need to run a reel. Now I don't need to follow th- rules a third. Now I don't need to do all the things that are on the accident analysis profile list that we all learn from. Because cave, cave training came from aeronautics. Because we, we developed our cave training program from mistakes the same way the aeronautics did. People get complacent because I'm so good, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do it. And that's what scares me the most about myself. That's what I, my strength is, is that I maintain the consistency of following good practice and procedures no matter what the situation is. Yeah. I, well said. Yeah, yeah. I, it's I can't. It's easier said yeah. than done. Is it? I mean, it, it, it really is because yeah. I could. It's a hard one that you I have could to very f- easily not do anything <laughs> anymore. But how am I going to keep. See, the thing is, if I get to where, all right, I don't need to run a reel here because I know it. I don't, but now then, it's been six months since I run a reel, and now I actually get myself in an emergency situation where I need to handle my equipment. So I teach, I, I, I encourage people, keep using your equipment all the time. So if, if, for God's sake, something ever really did happen, it's not going to be the first time you had to pull out that piece of equipment and use it. You know, in, in two or three because weeks or six routine, months or yeah. a year or whatever. Because you, you practice using all your equipment all the time. And it's the only way you're going to be good at it because it develops muscle memory, a conditioned response to when an emergency, should it ever happen, happened. So that's why I did it. That's why I do it. That's why I teach the people to do it is that... I'll, I'll do it all the time. I don't care where I'm at because I'm trying to keep my skills up. Because yeah, I can't fantastic. keep my skills. Always make I, yourself I'm constantly better. critiquing myself, trying to keep improving my skills. That's the only reason why today I can still hopefully look as good as I want my students you, to look. You do, bro. You do. And yeah. it, it, it shows because you, you don't have that complacency that a lot of people get. And that's what it is, is, is complacency. Mm-hmm that I'm constantly critiquing myself because I'm the picture that my students see, Mm -hmm. and I want them to look like me. Mm -hmm. So when I'm in front of them, 
this is what they, I want them to image, that they I, that I want them to look like. Fantastic stuff, man. See, that also, a lot of things we talk about is the art. We call it the art of scuba diving, and that, to me, speaks of artistry, where an artist always, you know, going doesn't ever settle, right? And it's always a unique creation going into the water, and, and, it, and you never quit. Right. Better. And, and that's I think that's what separates the people that have been doing it for decades and don't get tired of it right. than, than, than the people that have the been there, done that attitude is the people that are on that constant quest for, for making it more and more of a beautiful art. Yeah. yeah, they're always going for the quest of perfection. They're always trying to improve, so it doesn't ever end. You get somebody like Carlos Santana who has been playing the guitar for ever, it seems like, you know, and he's a guy that would, will still sit and practice scales for an hour before he goes out and does every single show that he plays, right? Of course, of course. And in the longer, and especially the longer we've been in this, I, how can I go dive and train a 20 or 30-year-old during my 60s and 70s if I haven't learned how to finesse what I do? And, you know, it, it takes a lot of culture and time, but if I continue doing it, you have to keep finessing how to do better with less less exertion. Fantastic stuff. Okay. Wait a minute. You good there, Captain? Cheers. <laughs> yes. So, looking back on all these years that you've been doing this, it's kind of it's kind of smoky. <laughs> uh, all this you've accomplished, the big projects you've done, the, the, the classes you've taught, the people you've met, uh, the dives you've done. Is there anything that you can think of, if you had it your way, that you could go back and change and do differently along the way from, from learning to dive to all the way up to what you're doing today? Yes. <laughs> the, the dives, no. Uh, because we didn't understand a lot about the physics of a lot of stuff that we were doing, uh, there was, I probably wouldn't have stayed out so late the nights before. <laughs> Agreed. <You know? laughs> uh, but, uh, but fortunately, uh, it never really called any serious problems, but I know I probably wasn't as good as I could have been on a lot of occasions where I could have been better. Uh, I, I think the other thing other than that was along the way I spent more time with friends and family because I, I was quite consumed for a lot of years with what I was doing so I think friends and family kind of uh, was second placed a lot to some degree and so I do get have a little remorse about that I have no remorse about the dives and the stuff we did and the stuff I learned and hopefully the stuff that we helped uh, grow because when we first started doing it no one was doing it and uh, so things kind of I felt like grew from a lot of stuff we did because we'd get when we were doing the Eagle's Nest project, we got to a point where 
we couldn't carry any more bottles of gas and we couldn't get support to carry any more bottles of gas into the cave. So this was in 1991. We started looking for some alternatives even back then. So my partner, Jim, Jim King, got information from this English company called Carmelon Research Marine Laboratory in England. And they were working with the old military Mark uh, 15 rebreathers. So Jim purchased, purchases three of them for us to start trying to use for eagle's nest. So we couldn't get anywhere in the States to sanction us to have a rebreather program because no one knew anything about rebreathers in, in 1990, 91. So uh, Jamaica was still a British colony then, so we leased the Marine Laboratory in Discovery Bay in Jamaica, and we met the guys from Carmelon Institute there in the Marine Lab, and we, we started our first rebreather program to help us try to advance our exploration in Eagle's Nest. So we spent, so it was kind of funny funny story because Jim had uh, a twin turbo King Air aircraft that he was in Tennessee. And the team that went over to do this first project was a guy named Jim King, John Cray, Billy Dean, and myself. So uh, Jim leaves Tennessee and picks up John uh, in Georgia, picks up me at uh, uh, Military Airfield in uh, Hernando County, and then we drop into Key West and pick up Billy, and then we fly into Jamaica. with, And, they, and it's like a seven- or eight-seat twin turbo, and we were crawling over equipment in the plane getting over there. So we get over there, and it was kind of people seeing stuff they'd never seen before we pull out there. So we, we did the project there, and uh, we and they had a recompression chamber at the lab, and those units at that time, we had to take them in a recompression chamber to calibrate them before we'd take them diving. So things have changed yeah. a lot over the years. So we did that program, and we, we came back. Uh, to the states and we to use them at the nest, but funny story, Jim uh, wound up getting in touch with this guy named uh, Brett Gillum. Brett Gillum. Yes. Oh yeah. And uh, Brett was scuttling an Ocean Quest vessel in uh, New Orleans that he it was going. They would, did a bankruptcy on it, and so Brett was selling off everything off the vessel. So Jim hooked up with him and went down with a big flatbed and purchased a 16-foot, 54-inch double lockout recompression chamber oh, wow. with a 50 CFM Bauer compressor <laughs> with two 50-foot-long, 3-foot diameter storage banks and brought them back to Tennessee, and we, we rebuilt the chamber. He sent myself and another guy down to Dick Rikowski in the Keys to get a chamber certified. And then we came back up and revamped the chamber, and we started doing test dives on the Mark 15 in a chamber in-house before we'd go down to the nest to dive them in the nest. And we dove uh, the Mark 15s in Eagle's Nest in 1991 in upstream tunnel in Eagle's Nest, and I think it was probably the first time rebreathers were in a cave with Florida uh -huh. cave divers. 
1991. And that's 290 something well, at the time. This is what, 1991? Yeah, we were doing 270s. Okay. Yeah, so for the, for the early 90s. Yeah. Serious, big, and, and, big dives. And the Mark 15 rebreather was a working rebreather used by the commercial and military. So we wound up having to put a 20 pound lead weight behind our neck to be able to trim out on it with. So it was helmet. No. No. Oh, okay. We, we had just on the unit itself. Oh, just itself. For the unit itself. Okay. Because okay. It, the way it was designed, it was designed okay. for people to work vertical. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Okay. And we couldn't, we couldn't swim, so we had to put a lead weight wow. about 20 pounds <laughs> on our shoulders to be able to get it to level out. But so that was, that was kind of fun stuff. But uh, uh, running the uh, running the chamber. Uh, and learning to do that and practicing. We learned a lot about it. And we were probably the first ones with the Mark 15 to actually, he had an uh, engineer that worked with him and we, uh, he did some plumbing artwork. And on the Mark 15, we're the first one that be able to take an offboard gas and flush the unit with it and put it into decompression mode. With wow. wow. And that was in 91. So all, all those years, what is it uh, that kept you motivated along the way? That, and even still today, I mean, you're still diving today. Like uh, you're, you're doing some real cave dives here. It was a unique time because I've noticed over the generations that, and especially with the technical aspects of exploring caves and doing wrecks or whatever it may be, the the people at the time can only go so far because of the technology and equipment they have to work with. So when we came in in the late 80s, early 90s, it was at one of those times. So it was a very fortunate time for me because the people like Sheck Exley and Bill Main and Lamar English and all those guys had done so much up to that point, they'd, they'd all reached the limits of their exploration and their abilities because basically of the equipment that they had to work with. Not at Eagle's Nest especially, we weren't able to, to go beyond where everybody else had already gone before. If it wasn't for the new technology of now we had Trimix, we had real decompression tables to use for them. We had computers to do that with. We had larger tanks. We had we had underwater vehicles that they never had before. And, you know, we started putting together habitats for the long decompressions to be able to get into. So it was very fortunate because the timing for me coming into this, you know, even though it was, you know, almost 10 years into, you know, when I started, I'd just gotten enough experience to be able to start appreciating that, okay, one, one day, a friend of mine, John Cray, introduces me to this guy named Jim, Jim King, and he shows up to Eagle's Nest. And at the time, I, was, I had the only access into the site because it was privately owned, and I was friends with the owner. So even Shaq actually used to come and say, Larry, I need to go out to the nest, and you escort me out there, because only other people that come out there was a hunting club. And so they'd run everybody off, else off if they weren't with me or something. So... So even Chet would call me up and say, come on out there. But anyway, shows up one day with this big big truck, and it's full of these 
German aqua zeps and a bunch of doubles with this stuff called Trimix and these little paper tables with all these numbers on it and said, you want to dye this? And I said, sure. <laughs> yeah. Aqua zeps for the, so, for the people out there. So, it was a scooter, by the way, right? Yeah, it was actually the German designed scooter. It was actually for escaping country during oh, the yeah. early days. It's a, it was a ride-on. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was a ride-on. So, so your uh, part of that motivation for you was just genuine excitement it, of, it was of, constantly of doing new it. stuff happening all the time. You know, there was something around the next corner all the time. You know, and that's what still intrigues me continuously because there's what's around the next corner. There's, you know, and I guess that's the heart of Explorer is that they always want to see what they haven't seen, what's, what's around the next corner, what's going to happen next. And I think that's continuing to happen even today. Uh, so excellent, Larry. Um, and, and from go, that, go ahead, yeah, yeah. And, and, and from that, that, that held for a while. And then we came into, uh, we called ourselves the first spawn from the Wakala 87 project, the Eagles Nest project. We, were, we called ourselves a spawn from that. Okay. So that, that went on. And then coming into the uh, mid-90s, then Bill Stone started working with the state on developing the Wakala 2 project. Well, he was building the, the Mark V cislunar rebreather. And he also the one that, that built and designed this digital wall mapper that we could we could take into the cave. Well, I got I got involved with Bill Stone. And Bill Stone lived in Maryland, and it was real fortunate because he he deals a lot with NASA. So we was able to go to the University of Maryland, who has a NASA lab with a 30-foot pool. So we used to be able to go over there to to test our equipment and everything. So I was actually the first pilot of the digital wall mapper that went into the uh, Wakulla for the Wakulla 2 project. And I was the first instructor for the Cislunar Mark V to train everybody for that project. So I was actually the one that, that ran the mapper into Wakulla the first time that collected the data that secured the permit for the Wakulla 2 project. So, and... And this was like a, mi a million dollar yeah. vehicle. And uh, the, the first third of the section was 32 sonar sensors around it. And then the, the back center part was all computer system and the back part was batteries and control. And what was neat about it was that it was all joy control and they had, because it was so big, it had canards on the front. Mm -hmm that I'd run with joysticks, you know, to go down, to go up, or to turn left or right. Yeah, because that thing was like, like 10 feet long or something, yes. wasn't it? Yes, So, and I had to be able to connect back, this was back in 97, mm. 98. When the project took place in 98, but we secured the permits and everything in 97. But I'd have to line to sat underwater with the unit because, and then, it would track, it had the same navigational system as it went on a commercial airliner. Mm -hmm. But then it, the sonar sensors would map the wall contours as you go in, and then it, at the point where we turned around, we'd, set a, we'd leave a beacon, so ground troops would then 
search the surface to find that beacon, and then we can connect SAT to that, and then we, we had a track for what we programmed underwater. Absolutely incredible stuff. So, the, you know, yeah. be, being involved, you know, in what's going to happen next and being involved with those kind of events and things happening has really been the big thing that's kept me motivated and intrigued about it. And then my students. Yeah, the people you meet, the experiences my, my, my you make. My experience, my students, and, and having so many students coming back and say, you know, I've taken what I learned in your course and I've applied it to my life. Mm-hmm. Other things, yeah. That's uh, when you can hear something like that genuinely from a student, it, it touches you as a, as it, a teacher. It really, it really does, you know. It kind of brings a tear to my eye. Yeah, yeah. You, you teach them about you, never, you teach them about gas management or something, and then they come back years later to tell you a story that that triggered something inside of them. You know, something that you said to them about scuba diving that they applied into real life. It's amazing. You, you never know. I've had. I've got letters that they've come back diving years later. They, they have a situation that occurs during the cave, and they come out of it, and they, they write me a letter to say, thank you for your training. Yes. Fantastic. Okay, so if life had worked out differently, and Larry Green wasn't this icon of cave diving that he turned out to be, where do you think you would have gone had you had you not taken that 150 foot dive in uh, hospital hole <laughs> hospital hole with your with your buddy uh, you never got that chance to to dive what uh, where do you think you would have gone Everest Everest it would it would have been something non it would have been a, a non diving version of diving you, like your lifestyle would be the same you think yes i th- i think so cuz i've always been intrigued with climbing always and uh even uh my uh diving experiences i've been uh, uh sponsored to go to spain we had um, some people in spain they were doing a lot of deep spelunking because there for a long time, and it's still going on, uh, of, of explorers trying to reach the deepest point in caves. And so I, I'd gotten communication with these guys that they're done, doing some deep sumps, and they'd finally hit sumps when none of them were cave divers. So they sponsored me to come to Spain, and we went up and spent a few weeks up on the north coast just west of the Pyrenees, and they, they trained me how to repel and climb into the caves so I could get to the sumps to teach them how to get through the sumps. So, and during this time, uh, they spent, I spent weeks on training me their, their techniques of repelling and climbing and stuff, and they even did a little, some face climbing and stuff back when I was young. And, and you know, and they, they put these shoes on me that were two times too small and these little funny tights <laughs> and right, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they put me on this rock face and they said just just look for all the little steps and they're talking about little dimples in the yeah. rock you know and uh, something I've kind of related to over the years is that I was about I don't know two three hundred foot off the ground you know it was it was pretty it was nothing but sheer rock face and I had two belays on me which had two two climbers ahead of me with ropes on me and I got to a point where 
one of my shoes come off and I froze. And I'm not moving. I was just like, oh. And they hollered you, you down. You can say it. We, uh, we use that word all the time. I said, I said, Larry, what's wrong? I said, my shoe came off. And they repeated, well, what's wrong? I said, my damn shoe went off. They said, well, put it back on. I had two belays on. I'm out of my environment. All I had to do was let go, reach down, put my shoe back on, everything is all right. So I kind of related that in life and in training and diving that most solutions of most problems are very simple. We, we overreact to a lot of scenarios. So all my life experiences has gained me things to help provide in giving inspiration of thought of people because most problems are solved more simply than we try to analyze them out at. Oh, yeah. Wise words. Yes. Such fantastic so, so wisdom. I've, I've, yes. used that, I've used that story num uh, numerous times about yeah. how simple. And how many times, we, you know, you had something. Damn, why didn't I think of that? that was, it was right <laughs> in front of my face, you know. So don't complex the obvious. Larry, this is a, a total pleasure, man. Um, like, I, I know because I'm holding the microphone right now because we can bring an extra one for Brando. So he, uh, he doesn't have a choice. Uh, but I know I can speak for him when I say that we could sit here and talk all night long uh, with, listening to these stories. But I know you've got places to go. Um, I'm, I'm, when, I'm, ca I'm catching up on it right now. <laughs> when... Um, What's, so, that next, what's that next question? So what, what the, the next one is, what, um, so what are you doing now? So for, for the people out there that, that want to get a hold, are you still teaching? Uh, can they get a hold of you? Is there, is there something that you want to send the people with of contact or something that you want them to, to walk away with knowing about you, history, future, anything like that before we kind of just close out? Well, I am still teaching. I still have all my certifications, still an active instructor, and still getting the water. Not as much as I used to. I mean, uh, during the day, I was doing probably 250 to almost 300 dives a year, including my personal dives and teaching dives. So I am well away from that now and starting to live life a little bit more of all the things that I missed doing that for a number of years but I still still love diving. I lo still love to inspire and answer questions and hopefully direct people and give them the right questions to ask. You know, and that's the biggest thing is, is finding a way to inform people more about what they need to be concerned with or whatever they're looking for. Yeah, fantastic, man. The, the, the passion certainly comes out of your voice. And, and you can see it in your face talking to you that, that you still have as, as deep of a passion as I, what I could imagine that you've ever had for it. I, I wouldn't still be here, you know, and I, I, still, I still love the sport. It's, uh, it's done well for me. I've, I've had so many great experiences with it. Uh, I've lived a lot longer than I expected to, you know, and uh, so I've been quite, I've been quite fortunate to be able to experience and do uh, some of the things that I've done and be involved with hopefully uh, leading the way for a lot of other things to, to happen, you know. I remember back in the day when 
uh, before uh, we had a lot of the tables that we have today, before uh, the deep stops and all that, when Richard Powell first came out with talking about deep stops. And this was a time when there was a guy named Eric Baker. Eric Baker was, uh, he was a, another mathematician uh, that uh, he, he got with uh, Bill Hamilton. And between he and Bill Hamilton, uh, translated Buman's last work after he died. And he was the first one, because my question, well, to back up a minute, uh, Eric Berkel, who wrote all these decompression programs, he also took his Trimex class from me. Oh, really? Oh, nice. <laughs> yes. So, and, and during this time that we were communicating together. And, and Eric Baker, by the way, is basically the gradient factor guy for the people today, right? Yes, yes. So at this time when uh, Richard Powell had come out with the deep stop theory because he, he was collecting fish specimens uh, in Hawaii, and he had to decompress the fish deeper than his, his, decom his computer required him to do, and he started coming up with a theory that he felt better because he was stopping deeper. Mm -hmm. to decompress mm -hmm. so he came up and everybody started jumping on this deep stop theory but at that time there was no data or no nothing to secure it and so that's what i asked eric about and he said you know because a lot of people there's it came out to being where there's a point in our ascent that there's an ambient pressure line where we're not we become ambient but anything below an ambient pressure line, we're still loading, and above it, we're starting to off-gas. So, but at that point in time, that line had never been established. Eric, some a couple of several years later from that, actually was the first person, and I love this term. He's called it an exponential polynomial equation that came up. With, with figuring out where your ambient pressure line is, where it created all this M values and everything right. else, so we're, where we now can now more linearly, linear, excuse me, yeah. Yeah. say that literally, word. yeah, you know, adjust, <laughs> just where our M value, whether or not we wanted to really be at eighty percent or where we wanted to be, mm -hmm. at, you know. But before before he came up with that equation, it was all guesswork because. The earlier decompression software that came out with the check was one of the first programs that came out in the DOS program back in, in the earlier 90s, and everything was DOS. And then there was DPA, and there was a couple others. But back then, to, to adjust conservatism and decompression software that was available during the 90s, it was one was saying it would calculate, say, from 0 to 100% of conservatism, one was using, well, we went deeper than we did. One would say we went longer than we right. did. And the other one said we had more inert gas than we did. That was the only way in the beginning we had mm -hmm. to add conservatism. There was, yeah. you, there was no true alignment. Right. It was of still what, the same decompression schedule for all yeah. intents and purposes, but just but, see, like what Patty does. Kind of thing. But a nice thing was that because of my constant questions to Eric is we – I get, got him involved with uh, the Dr. X program, which was Sheck X's program, which is a program that he actually built for his thesis degree, for his doctorate okay. degree, and that's why he called it Dr. X. Okay. But 
uh, Eric ran a bunch of analysis on, on programs, uh, sex programs, and they were within the 80% range and as long as you're under 30 minutes. After you go above 30 minutes of autumn time, they then became more exponentially less conservative. But during those early days, because of the equipment and gas supplies we had, we were all pretty safe because we were staying under, you know, 30, 40 minutes actual bottom time. So that was kind of a little interesting tidbit about that growth. Fantastic. Incredible stuff, my man. You were heavily involved in that, the word, uh, when they were just making up all those. Do you remember a guy named Randy Bohr? Yeah. Yeah, well, that was my open water instructor. Okay, 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 yes. Yeah, you were throwing out those names. I know Randy worked with a couple of those guys, and he was uh, developing tables for... Yes. He did the computer work anyway, yeah. So. Anyway. Cool stuff. Larry, my man. I appreciate this, this guys. Is, this has been great. This has been Thank great. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Um, I hope all the people uh, appreciate this as, as much as we have. Um, I hope uh, I definitely appreciate it, it your opens our mind like you are a true inspiration to me like the stuff that, that you've taught me and it's going to go on for many many years and I'm going to carry it on to my students absolutely I appreciate your interest and I think a lot of people today don't really realize how new what we're doing still is oh, yeah well great, said yeah great, yes yeah it's well, I don't know what I can, how I can expound it is even though it seems like you know, 30 years ago was a long time, or 25 years ago. It's not. This is still in the developing stages. No, yeah. and like on that subject, back in 91 uh, when we were training with the Mark V military unit, we were thinking, oh, man, rebreathers are going to be mainstream in the next five or six years. <laughs> Yeah. And and look at look how right. long it took them yeah. to get that yeah. that way, you know, because it there's years, right? it took almost thirty years yeah. for it to come out. Mm-hmm. Same thing as legalizing other things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're supposed to be in flying cars too. I thought. Yeah. yeah. Okay, everybody. <laughs> All right, you, you, you can you can next that. If you want to. <laughs> listen, everybody. Uh, you guys uh, had a chance to listen to a, a treasure. This is awesome. Uh, we had a great time and. Uh, have a good evening, my man. Thank you very much. Very Both of you, thank you very, very much. Very I appreciate your interest and uh, carrying on some history. Well, hey, everybody. There's Larry Green for you. Uh, like I was saying a minute ago, I mean, we easily could have talked to him for hours, but we had to try to put, put some sort of yes. a limitation on it, you know, and uh, I tried to keep it moving along, but... Well, Easily we could have get, gotten lost in any of those stories. And I remember from last time meeting him, we did night after night after yeah. night, just up late talking and talking and talking. He's, he's got a, a million, million stories. Which if you're passionate about diving, he's got you. And you always want to leave the audience wanting more. So hopefully right. we'll, be, we'll be doing more interviews with Larry in the future because he has a lot more to add to the cave diving or to diving community period so um after talking to him boy i I really want to approach even changing my education game Mm -hmm. a bit i really loved how he talked about how he never argues with a student he never gets in a debate with a student he lets you if if you can do it you want to try it you think you can pull it off despite despite what i just told you yeah right and then Mm -hmm. and then halfway through the dive you go 
Oh, shit. Well, that's... What was I thinking? That's yeah. called the Socratic method. <laughs> and that's what Socrates would do is... He, w- he wouldn't argue. He'd take your side and let you... Make yourself look like an idiot. Pretty soon you're you, arguing you his you, original you, thesis. And you're, right, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and it wasn't like he, he was trying to... It wasn't an ego trying to make you look like an idiot. His Socrates' whole thing was to spread the w- word of wisdom that he knew. And he, he was put to death for it. But... He wouldn't argue. The Socratic method is that. That's what it, what he he's talking about is, sure, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, that was great. I yeah. love that. I love that. Yes, really good stuff. Really good stuff. I uh, look forward to more. Like I say, I, I, I think we should be doing an annual Larry Green interview. He's um, There's only a handful of people like that, that it, for me, that have something to offer not just with diving but for anybody listening to what he has to say he's taken something that he's passionate about kind of told you how serious you know what seemed like random accidental whatever non-planned events in his life had led him up to where he's at right now and how much passion he has for it and how much uh he still to this day you know 70 a little over 70 years old still doing this still you know uh as passionate and about doing it, it well, yeah, and, and well, of course, of course, yeah, and as passionate about it as he ever was. And I, I think he shares a lot of the passion that I have mm-hmm. and that you have, which is why, like, those are the people that I really enjoy in the community talking to. True, it's one thing to talk to somebody about diving, mm-hmm. specifically about diving. It's another the the conversations and the people that I love talking about diving with are the ones where you find yourself talking about something not even diving. Right. And it's related to it somehow. Mm. Right. Because it's about life and you've made diving your life. And for us, life is diving and we, we, Mm. we, it all comes together and it's whether it's, you know, the way you're pouring your coffee you know, in the morning, you know, or, uh, you know, or the way you're driving the, the car, you know, away from the, the dive site, it's, it all gets interrelated and, and it's, it's cool when you share that passion with somebody. Right. That's what it made it, made it that much more enjoyable. So, so I loved it. I know you loved it. Mm-hmm. People, if you enjoyed it, send right. us a message and let us know, you know, um, Share this around. I mean, this is an interview. I mean, it's uh, the original release is going to be for you guys on Patreon. You got first dibs on this. Um, for everybody else um, who's not a Patreon sponsor, you're getting it months later. But um, this is so good that I would feel guilty not sharing this with every diver, every instructor who strives to be better than just an instructor who really wants to be an educator. This is uh, pure gold. Agreed. Correct. All right, I everybody. I can't add anything to that. It All right. is, it's really good stuff. All right, everybody. Thank you uh, very much, and uh, we'll see you soon for some more great dive podcasts. Safe diving.
thing, I never plan on, on going and doing any of the things I did, and I just keep saying, you know, we got to be flexible enough to let your life's experiences kind of guide your path and what you're going to do. Because when you get started in a new field, you know nothing about it. And that's the problem, because when you first get started, you don't know the questions to ask. You don't know the concerns until you've got some experience under your belt.